Hello, I'm Derek Doak, and you're listening to the Real Estate Investment Insights Podcast. For over 25 years, I've been serving the investment property industry, from preparing tax returns for property owners when I worked in public accounting, to creating multi-million dollar syndications as a commercial broker. Throughout my career, I've always had a passion for learning and teaching what I've learned to others. This podcast is for fellow brokers, agents, investors, and real estate syndicators wanting to learn from those that have done it. My goal is to bring value to you through the sharing of best practices and industry knowledge. Each episode is geared towards providing knowledge and insights on industry topics and trends. Please enjoy this episode, and if I can be of any assistance, please reach out to me at Derek at dokemail.com. Now enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another Real Estate Investments Insights. I'm your host, Derek Doak. And with me today, I'm uh, extremely excited about this podcast, not only the individual with uh, Casey Conway of uh, CCI Institute, Chief Economist, but also I think this is a marking point of heading into that next wave of opportunities and where the market's going to be. One thing I think we want to look for in this podcast with Casey is talking about the real numbers, you know, not the hype that we read about in all the magazines, not the hype we read about in, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the various social medias that we're part of around commercial real estate, but the true reality where the numbers are today and what could be potentially happening to us in the brokerage business, as well as us as investors. Um, So with that, I want to bring on Casey, uh, introduce himself, uh, talk a little bit about his background, kind of where he comes from as it relates to this industry. And uh, again, honored to have uh, uh, Casey on the call with us and um, looking forward to uh, this podcast. So Casey, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and then we'll proceed. Great. Thank you. It's, it's wonderful to be part of your uh, podcast and in, in, in your audience. So um, I'm, uh, I will turn 60 next month. So I'm an old, gray hair, thinning hair, cranky guy. <laughs> uh, I lived through the 70s growing up in Colorado when my dad was a ski resort developer. So that scarred me for life. And I've, I've been very concerned that we're headed back there, maybe um, not for as long an eight to 10 year period, but it, it could be worse. Uh, so I grew up in Colorado, ended up here in, in Georgia, uh, going to Emory University to business school, got trapped in a good economy down here in the southeast. Every time I tried to go back to Colorado, things would implode like the oil patch or whatever. Um, so I, I just was out there, got got nice, cool two weeks. Wonderful. I'm back in hot Atlanta where it's miserable. Um, so uh, several things I've got, um, you know, I'm a, a counselor of real estate, uh, my MAI designation, CCIM. If I get another designation, I'm going to have to add MOUSC after my name. Uh, I travel to a lot about a third to a half of the chapters, uh, CCM chapters a year. Um, so I try to get out and around. We're even going to go to Puerto Rico. Um, last time I was there was with Barbara Crane and um, uh, the Florida chapter after Hurricane Maria. So we're heading down there. So uh, we like to sp- spread ourselves to all the different chapters. And uh, so I'm studying the economy, but I will tell you, um, I'm not a glass half full or glass half empty. I'm, I just want to know where the other half of the water went. <laughs> so absolutely, we'll be, we can jump into it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and you bring up the chapters, and I I do want to put a little plug in here for the CCIM. I mean, I I uh, think a lot of my successes and the deals I've done and the opportunities I've gotten were either through the education through the CCIM or through other CCIM counterparts 
uh, around the country and in my own chapter here in Washington state. So if anybody out there listening is wondering the value of the CCIM, I mean, you get access to knowledge from people like Casey here uh, on a regular basis, which is, uh, I think um, you can't put a price on it. Um, it. It's helped me out a lot when I look at doing deals. So um, after that plug, we'll go ahead and, and jump into the questions here. And I think the first part is just kind of giving us your overview of what you've studied and kind of what brought you to where you are today as it relates to where the market is and your thoughts on the overall market as it relates to the real estate with inflation and interest rates doing what it's doing. Sure. So I, I, I started early in my career in the 70s watching these things implode in a in a family that got very badly beaten up by the um, inflation of the 70s. Uh, my dad was delivering uh, condos and land development in Bale in 1976, 78, and pretty much got, got wiped out. Um, so that scarred me uh, for life, and I've always been trying to pay attention to that. Um, I started out, my dad said, you know, after the 70s, you know, you need to, if you're going to do real estate, you need to learn about value. So he encouraged me to get my MAI designation. And so I do a lot of expert witness work today. I'm a scarred third generation appraiser. Um, and so a lot on the valuation rooted, a lot on the economics. I was um, the commercial real estate subject matter expert to the Fed during the last crisis, um, 2005 to 10, the great housing crisis. I was advising Bernanke on on everything and doing a lot of the um, policy response. I, I tip my hat to Bernanke that at least he was creative and knew that what we went through last time in 2008 and nine was very different. And he developed very creative, innovative tools rather than um, you know just using the tool, raise rates in the balance sheet. Uh, I'm concerned our Fed today doesn't do that. The only uh, credible Fed president I think that's, that's out there um, that's been on inflation has been Jim Bullard. I, I know all the Fed presidents. Uh, I still brief them. I just did a briefing to the bank regulators and all the state banking regulators uh, a couple of weeks ago in Chicago. So uh, I, I approach economics as a practitioner, not an academic. Uh, I don't have my PhD. I have all the credentials behind my name. So I learned how to do it like, like CCIMs on the ground, real life experience. So that's how I get to where I where I go. And I try to you know be relatable, connect the dots. We just did an updated inflation ward inflation course. Uh, so we put a lot of stuff. If you haven't seen that one, you might look at that. We're going to do an updated logistics one coming up here in the next 30 days. What's going on with supply chain and logistics. So I approach it from a real world standpoint, not an academic standpoint. Yeah. And that, and I think that's what everyone in the audience here that listens to the podcast, that's kind of, you know, we're pretty much all practitioners and uh, in the trenches every day. Um, and that's why I think having you talk about kind of where, the market is and the impact here is is valuable. So when you look at what you've studied up to this point and what's going on with the market, I mean, what what's kind of your overview of the impact that the, the rise in interest rates have right now? And then also this feeling of inflation. And then some are saying we're even in a recession already, but no one's admitted it. I mean, what's kind of your overall take on that? No, great, great, great question to start with. So I'm in the camp and I have been really since the end of last year um, that we were headed back to a 1970s event. So remember the Fed that we're dealing with. This is a Fed that a year ago, you know, was telling us in the spring, no inflation. Then it was going to be transitory. Then it was going to be transitory longer Then it was at the end of the year. Forget we ever said transitory. 
Um, then in January, when they had the chance to move on rates, they said, mm, we're not going to do it. And then they had no meeting in February. Then in March, they said, oh, my God, look at these inflation numbers. And they said, OK, we'll put our toe in the water. We'll raise a quarter, uh, you know, 25 basis points. Then they took February off, came back in March. It was really bad. We were now at set over 7% inflation. So they said, oh, gosh, we better raise rates 50 basis points. Then, um, then, they, then they take another break and they come back in, in, in May uh, here in May and June and they do. Uh, go to a 75 basis point hike. And I'm in the camp. They have to do another 75 basis point here in July. That's next week. Uh, so Tuesday and Wednesday, go enjoy your summer vacation because when you read the headlines on Thursday, it's not going to be good. I think they're tempted. There's almost enough voting members to go to a full one point. Uh, I'm not in the camp. These people that think that's it. That's the last rate hike. Inflation's peaked. I'm very concerned that we haven't even begun to see the peak in inflation. Uh, and I look to things like corporate earnings. So we're just getting those. We just got through the bank earnings. Next week, we've got a, a slew of corporate earnings that are really important that don't deal with, um, you know, deal with the banks. We get, you know, entities like Coke and Microsoft and Ford and Exxon, um, you know, McDonald's, um, you know, Pfizer. These are companies that are global in nature. They're seeing the inflation, not just here, but globally. They're seeing what's happening with wages. And so far, even if you look at the banks, which should be just partying like the Dickens because their net interest margin, the, the spread between what they pay you in deposits and what they're charging to lend out should be great. They're now starting to see what JP Morgan just admitted to, which was, wow, we see a lot of credit problems coming. And so we're going to start putting away a lot of loan loss reserves. So when I look at these things, I try to connect the dots. So the one dot I can't figure out, though, maybe the CCIM, someone out there can help me, is the 10-year treasury. If you know you're going to have another 75 basis point hike coming here in in July, why have we seen the 10-year come down from its peak last month of three and a half percent? Why why have we seen, and that was June 14th, so about you know five weeks ago, why have we seen it come down to 2.9 a day below 3%? Um, is it is it Fed intervention still buying mortgage bonds? Um, we know we have an inverted yield curve right now. The two is above the, the two-year yield is above the 10-year. That's usually a bellwether, not always, but 90% of the time of a recession coming. So everything I look at connecting the dots, inverted yield curve, earnings, uh, another FOMC meeting coming, CPI, it was hot again here for June, over 9% year over year. Uh, GDP went negative in the first quarter. I don't see anything telling us GDP is going to turn positive here in the second quarter. So if next week um, we get another um, another a negative GDP report next a week from today, next well, next Thursday, um, that'll meet the unofficial definition of two consecutive quarters of contracting GDP. So we went from plus 6.9% at the end of last year, fourth quarter, to minus 1.6, 1.4% revised in the first quarter. I don't see what tells me that the uh, second quarter here is going to be positive. So I just don't know what the media spin is out there. I, you know, I, I try to look at everything to see if there's you know, su some sun shining in somewhere. And I don't see that right now. I also look at things like the forward indicators, University of Michigan Consumer Confidence and the NFI, NFIB Small Business um, Confidence Index. The University of Michigan just hit its all-time low reading for consumer confidence. The last low was 58.7 in June of 1980. It just hit in June of this year, 50.2. That's the fastest drop in consumer confidence, I think, since the night that we've seen since the 70s. And then on, on the NFIB, the small businesses 
Uh, they just their index just dropped below, you know, below 90, marking the sixth consecutive month below the 48 average of 98. And it was the lowest reading uh, on in terms of the outlook. It was the lowest reading in their 48 year history. So I don't mean to be gloom and doom, but I, the saying I've been kind of promoting this first half of the year is don't get scared, but get prepared. And there's a lot you can still do for your clients and your own portfolios to get prepared because I, I'm not in the camp that things look all good and that inflation's tamed and rates are going to stop after this next meeting. I, I see a lot, a lot of headwinds out there. Well, I've got two follow-on questions to that. Um, the first being time-wise, what do you think the timing is of kind of all this unfolding? Is it, you know, is it going to be a 12 month, 18 month, three year? I mean, guesstimate on the timing we all feel this. And then the second is, I know you talk to a lot of brokers out there across the country, um, a lot of sophisticated brokers. How are they handling this with their clients? I mean, what are they using this to help leverage themselves into being that great resource for their clients? Yeah. So let's start with the timing issue. So, you know, if you remember the 70s from, you know, Nixon, you know, and he tried to do price controls and inflation, then Ford and Carter had to deal with those. And, uh, you know, some of those gimmicks, it was an eight to 10 year cycle for us to get through. Remember Reagan in 81, we, we, we peaked on, you know, 21 percent prime. It really wasn't until 82. So if you look at really 72 to 74 to 82, it was an eight to 10 year process. I'm praying to God we're not in an eight to 10 year process here, but I will tell you the Fed with Volcker and them was a hell of a lot more competent than I think we have with Jay Powell in, in this current uh, Fed. If we had more Jim Bullards from St. Louis, Esther George from uh, you know Kansas City, um, I would be more confident, but we've got you know, like a Raphael Bostic in Atlanta that's been all over the board. You got um, Mester from Cleveland, you've got um, you got a number of these folks that are, I think they've been in denial. They've missed this whole thing. And, and now they're in panic mode. So I think what we see here is, I think when the, the big question is going to be is, what does the Fed do after August? So they'll have this July meeting. They go to Wyoming and they have a wonderful time in Jackson Hole and hopefully get their head clear in the mountain air and cool stuff and come back. And I think when they see the August data in September for the September meeting, I think they're going to be panicked. I think we see, you know, we already have producer price index over 11. Uh, we have the consumer at nine and not taming. I think we have much more inflation issues coming, particularly in food inflation. Look at the weather and the droughts we've had. Um, you know, half of the, the summer wheat crop in Kansas and Nebraska and the mid, Midwest and the Plain States has is, is, uh, been destroyed by the droughts. Um, you look at uh, one third of the world's wheat did not get planted or harvested this year in Russia and Ukraine. Um, so we're going to have this huge disruption in that. We've um, had the drought affecting our livestock and much of that has gone to slaughter to just because they can't afford the feed. They can't afford the corn that's going into the gasoline to make it ethanol, to make it cheaper. Um, and then you've got China, who's been shut down. Forty uh, percent of their GDP has been shut down and they're trying to reawaken and come back in. If China fully reengages re and comes on full bore here, um, look at the demand on energy. They're the second largest users of energy uh, in, the, in the world uh, after us. And um, 
you know, we could see $150 a barrel oil or higher because of China reopening. So I don't see things taming, even though oils come down below $100 a barrel. We haven't even begun to deal with the realities of what Europe faces this fall and winter with Russia shutting off all the natural gas. Uh, Germany is already trying to scramble, anticipating that they may have one or two months where they can't open factories because there's not energy. So I, I don't see the inflation tamed at all. I, I really don't. And what the companies are telling us in um, in their pricing, and I'll use um, uh, uh, was it Target was a good example, which said no, I'm sorry, yeah, it was, it was Target. They said, look, at they've raised prices over 12 percent uh, so far this year and got away with it, um, but they don't know if they can keep doing that. So watch these earnings. Look at a Procter and Gamble, the food supply, a ConAgra, you know, a Coca-Cola. What are they telling us about not just wages but also the inputs? And their margins are getting squeezed. Uh, Procter & Gamble was, has been able to raise prices, but the consumer is getting to a breaking point. So I, I think what we face is this is at least a two or three year event and that the wheels really come off late fall, particularly around the November elections. We've all forgot those come at us. And whatever the results are in November, half the American population isn't going to be able to accept the results. And so the divide we're going to face, the ability to get Congress to come together and, and work on issues, uh, unless it's a major landslide that swings the other way, uh, I really fear that we stay very divided and unable to deal with really critical issues, uh, particularly our energy. You know, it just doesn't make sense to me that we're willing to go to the rest of the world and say, you produce more carbon-based energy, but not us in the United States. Let's us be miserable and suffer when we, we could be the Saudi Arabia of natural gas and solve all the problems in Europe. So I think we need to at least be preparing for a two to three year event. After midterms, particularly in contested periods where we see a slowing economy, it's more likely we go into um, a recession period. So I think we're in recession and we're in denial right now. And I think when we get the new GDP numbers next week, we'll have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. And I don't see anything turning that around in third and fourth quarter. So that's the timing issue. And as far as what I'm hearing from brokers and whatnot, and I'm in a real active area of the country. I, I've been traveling you know, from back and forth from Texas, Houston, and Dallas. Texas is the most open back to work state with over half its workforce, its office workforce going back to the office more than any other state. Um, and what we're hearing, and we got ports and we got site selection announcements by Hyundai and SK Batteries and Remington Firearms and uh, VinFast. So we've got a ton of this stuff from the Carolinas all the way down through Alabama. And even with all of that type stuff, the, the latest data out on the first quarter state GDP, there were only four states in the first quarter that had positive GDP. And those will shock you, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Michigan, uh, everybody else, Florida, Texas, were all negative. So um, uh, what I'm hearing from the brokers is they're seeing deals fall out, particularly land deals, and it, even in industrial. So big merchant developers, big companies that were, were doing stuff, they're concerned about this evolving Amazon story that they overbuilt. And what does Amazon Web Services do with Amazon e-commerce that overbuilt warehouses? And so they're letting deals um, fall apart. So I would say it's a time, it's a sense of urgency right now. Don't sit around and idle um, waiting for a deal to get done. Accelerate every element of it because I think we're going to see more fallout of deals. And the other one is after just asking the state bank regulators, the state bank regulators told me that bank after bank, regional, smaller community banks, they are all putting pressure on them to look at their CRE concentration 
and and kind of tamp it down. Uh, they don't want to see another real estate crisis here, especially when they look at what's happening in, in housing. So I think you're going to see banks get squirrely and pull back on capital for commercial real estate. I think you see institutional money pulling back as well, saying, let's see how this thing plays out. And we'll come back when we think interest rates have peaked out and the feds quit moving. Um, so that's what I'm hearing from every one of them. They're seeing trouble with deals getting financed. They're seeing deals fall out of escrow. And if you've got a land deal, uh, I would say that three or four of our biggest clients that are big, big merchant developers in industrial and housing have all seen about a quarter to a third of their land deals um, hit the skids. So land prices are correcting and coming down pretty dramatically. Yeah, no, I, that makes total sense. I, I know from my own side of the business, you know, I've started doing um, more all cash acquisition offers versus leverage. Yeah. Because it's moving so quickly. And I mean, we you when you're getting monies in the high threes, the low four percent, and now they're quoting starting out at five and a half, five and three quarters. I mean, it's it just takes the number out when you're at a six cap or five and a half cap, whatever your cap rate is, it just really squeezes that cash flow. And then if you've got tenants that are starting to struggle from a getting goods and being able to service their clients, that makes it even harder, right? So um I guess the 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 follow-on question to all that is what are you seeing are the opportunities that brokers are talking about from the positive perspective? Are there any? Are they saying here's what I'm helping clients do? I mean, I can see if you've already got a project now, now's the time to take advantage of the time you're gonna have and just securitize that property as far as make it more valuable, figure out other ways to make more revenue from it. But just kind of look at your own portfolio, put your arms around it and just embrace it until we kind of come out the other side. No, yeah, and I'll give you a few tips that I've picked up on. So one of them I've picked up on is one of the big merchant developers active here in the Southeast was telling me, look, at they think land is back on sale again. So if they can get their land base, it's really good pieces that take a long time to get entitled and whatnot. If you can get your equity capital together um, and engaged, that you can pick up stuff 30, 25, 30% off and it's gonna come back within two years. So they're looking at this as an opportunity to maybe do some land banking. Um, and maybe don't go forward with the development, but they really, they're scouring, looking at the deals that are falling out of escrow that are near ports, on rail, part of the supply chain, really good interstate type stuff. They're also doing that in residential because the big public and regional um, builders are pulling back. So when you see in a two year period, when people say, well, the housing thing is all an inventory, you know, issue and you don't have enough houses, I call it barbecue sauce. That's that's what we the rich you economists and economics call BS the polite way in the South. I've learned call BS barbecue sauce and you can get away with it. But we've seen the median price of a home in two years go from 300,000 to 430. That's almost a 50% increase. On top of that, when the interest rate hikes, you know, we got up to a five and a half percent mortgage here within the last 30 to 45 days. Um, it's gone from $1,500 a month to $2,500 a month using that median home price. So um, we, we don't have excess demand for homes. We have a normal demand of about a million three to a million five homes. We have a normal demand for car inventory. We just can't deliver the supply. So I think the, the builders have said, we're not going to do what happened to us in 2008 and nine. We're not going to make up for it on volume. We're just going to pull back. And so that's why you're seeing them not put a lot of inventory on multifamily. We're going to be fine. Um, where I'm worried are the big urban markets that were pushing rents 
in costs when you were getting, you know, three plus dollars to five dollars a square foot in rents in the urban areas where people are now working remote. Uh, they looked at the adaptability affordability issue and they moved where it was affordable. And the companies, as you know, you know, being in the Pacific Northwest in California, the, the big tech companies weren't successful in saying, OK, you moved from Seattle or San Francisco, um, you know, to say Colorado Springs, Colorado or San Antonio. And so we're going to cut your wages by 30 percent for cost of living. None of them were able to do that. So. Um, I think the cities that are at risk are those that were dependent on public transportation, high density urban areas. And that's what we're seeing the uptick in uh, sublet space, uh, sometimes as much as 25% of the space. Here in Atlanta, we've seen 25% of our downtown, midtown, Buckhead markets go to almost 25% sublet. And I think we have a big repricing coming in in the uh, urban office, but the suburban is incredibly strong. We have clients and companies that come to us um, almost weekly saying, where can we get suburban space? And so our biggest tip is go look at closed branch banks. Last year, we closed a record 3,500. Most of these are close to you know, where your workforce is. So we're overlaying where workforce is in the suburbs with closed branch banks. We're able to buy those for 50 to 60 bucks a square foot, put 10 bucks in them, and, and they appraise out and are worth you know, 100 to 120 bucks a square foot. So suburban office near workforce is an opportunity. Um, multifamily is not going to implode. We'll add for a record 450,000 apartment units this year, but we're at 96% occupancy nationwide. If you look at Rent Cafe, um, and I learned a new trick about Rent Cafe, most major property management companies for multifamily today use Rent Cafe as their contact relationship manager software. So every time a lease is done, and I just learned this from my daughter helping her execute a new lease down in Sarasota, Florida. They dump every aspect of that lease and your demographics into their database. And this rent cafe data is incredibly accurate. So I don't see an implosion coming in multifamily. The issue in multifamily is going to be if your expenses are growing 7 to 10% and you can only grow rents 3 to 4%, you have an adverse impact on NOI. That means there's going to be some value correction there, even if cap rates don't adjust down. Um, office, like I said, the urban office, I'm the most um, down about. Suburban, I'm positive on. Believe it or not, retail, um, if you look at strip retail, not the malls, not the big box, but the strip retail in the areas that are um, prior um, CCM president um, Tim Blair coined called influence density. So when you do, if you're doing retail, you want to find density of housing and that density of housing, having jobs and, and net worth. And so if you have households that have wealth and jobs and they're in a dense area, that strip retail is doing incredibly well. In fact, it's seeing rent growth I mean, and value increases of five to 10 percent, according to Green Street, um, which is pretty good on the good stuff. Industrial, we're going to see some correction there, particularly in big markets like Dallas, Atlanta, Nashville, because what's happened is, is Amazon overbuilt and they've lost $7 billion in the first quarter. If they lose another $7 billion in the second quarter, I think Amazon Web Services will be very inclined to dump them, get rid of them. They're tired of the distractions where Amazon got into Rivian EV cars. They got into trying to take on FedEx and create their own global shipping. And Amazon Web Services said, we make all the money, you lose all the money, quit doing it. So what leaked out over the summer, early part of the summer, was that Amazon had supposedly overbuilt by 10 million square feet. The real number is more like 
50 million square feet. And I validated that by, by talking to the major brokerages. So if you talk to a Collier's, a CBRE, a JLL, et cetera, and you add up all the contracts they have to sublet or sell excess Amazon space, it totals over 50 million square feet. And Amazon's triple net leases that they've gone into the institutional market, like our former REIT uh, Monmouth, they're about 25% below the market um, rental rate going into the summer for e-commerce warehouse space. So if Amazon wants to dump, they got a lot of room to lower the prices and still make a make a profit margin. So I think that has to play out here this fall. And it's the big markets like Dallas, Atlanta, Nashville, um, you know, Denver, um, Orlando, Miami. Those are the big ones that are going to get hit. And then it'll settle back down. Um, but I think we see some upward movement in cap rates in industrial 50 to 75 basis points, but then it all gets gets going good again. So I would look at, you know, suburban secondary markets where people have moved. Look at what I've always talked about, uh, moving reports, the, the census data, where has workforce and companies gone? They've gone inland. So from the West Coast, they've gone to Boise, Salt Lake, you know, uh, Denver, um, Phoenix. Uh, in the South, they've gone to Texas, Tennessee, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas. Um, and, and they're seeing 15%, 10 to 15% population and workforce growth. If you have that type of growth, you can work through 7 to 9% inflation. So follow where the people and the demographics have gone, and they've gone inland in a secondary, more affordable market. So those are my top tips. Go inland, go to secondary markets, uh, follow the site selection announcements by Toyota, Hyundai, VinFast, SK Batteries, Remington Firearms, they're all moving inland. And they're moving into interstate corridors like I-85, I-95, I-40, and I-20. And um, and don't worry about multifamily. And um, focus on, this is a time to focus on the suburbs. We've all waited a long time for the suburbs and secondary markets to shine. And I think they will power through um, what, we're, what we're facing here. Yeah. Well, I'm just happy that uh, you were able to pull your inner positive self out here towards the end, because at the beginning, you're going, oh, it's kind of, I hate to be doom and gloom. And then you pull out opportunities, right? Like it, it, there, chaos has always created opportunities. Some of the biggest companies in the world were created during downtimes in the you know world and, you know, United States economic downturns. Um, so when you think of it from a real estate perspective, it's no different, right? It's the, where are the people at? Like necessity-based retail. That's what I like. I like those little centers you talked about close to where everybody's at and you provide necessities, things that can't be replaced by the internet. Um, and, uh, and you make sure you have ample parking, good visibility and a strong place for your tenants to make money. Those always do well, but, uh, uh, hearing around the office, um, and it's no different in a lot of brokerage firms. You know, people are at 25, 40, 60% max capacity of people coming into the office versus just working, you know, from home and occasionally dropping in. So I think there'll be some of that shift in dynamics uh, as it relates to investment styles. How do you how do you convert one of those buildings into something else? Um, I think it was in Chicago where you're starting to see or a couple of places where they had some of these large office buildings that are now being retrofitted into more multifamily, um, yeah. you know, more so than just the office space. So that that will play out. But if I'm if I'm hearing correctly, your your feeling is over the next couple of years, the strong place to be pursuing and looking at opportunities is going to be more the 
infill locations where companies are moving to, not the main urban hubs, but finding where the density is and where the population is and those that are going to have the means and resources to be, you know, able to pay the rents, use services and goods and, uh, and kind of stay in their, in their community. No, you're, you're exactly right. And remember, if you look at the asset types, bonds, stocks and equities, <laughs> Bitcoin, real estate, there's one asset class that does well during inflation and it's commercial real estate. It's a tangible asset. The next one costs more to build or replace than the one you just bought or built. Um, so it's a hedge and you get a coupon during there. So even if rents don't grow four to seven percent, but you can get a nice, you know, three to four percent. Um, but you get you don't have a lot of turnover because you got population growth into the suburbs or the inner markets. Commercial real estate outperforms. And do you really think that institutional money wants to pour money into bonds, given this interest rate environment where another 75 basis point? You really want to buy a 10 year Treasury bond at 290 today, knowing the Fed's going to still be raising rates this month and maybe September. That's just nuts. Look at the equities. Every one of the companies that are reporting are telling you the guidance is going down. They're taking the guidance down. Things aren't going to be like they were the last two years. Um, so they're telling you the inflation is still there. It's wages, it's materials, it's their margins. Um, so the equities, I think there's still a lot of room to go in correction. We're down 20, 30 percent. I think we have another 10 to 15 percent to go overall in the indices. And look at Bitcoin. Um, I, I think we could see it test again, go, go back into the you know, 10 to 15 range before it goes back to 60 to 80 again. So where do you put money to work? And so CCIMs are going to be called upon to really help kind of, you know, uh, sort out the, the wheat from the chaff and, and figure out where do we go. Don't go urban, go suburban. Don't go maybe full coastal, go interior, go infill if you go coastal. Understand the demographics. Use your site to do business data. Know where the, say, leakage is in your community profiles that, you know, where, why would a Dollar Tree or Dollar General go in, in one suburban market and not another because it's getting growth and opportunity. Land, there's the, I just did a briefing on all agricultural land, um, ranch land, farmland, irrigated, non-irrigated. And those numbers up, NACREF has a farmland index. It's up 10% this year in the first six, in the first two quarters. And that's after you know years of it doing the same thing. So people are piling money into agriculture, knowing that food's going to get more expensive. How do we get more wheat? How do we get more coin, corn, soybeans? Where do we put uh, you know livestock to get pasture uh, given the droughts? So um, the agricultural land. Look at the Nacre Farmland Index. Um, very impressive on that there. Uh, look at the for rent subdivisions. Uh, even the public and regional builders are starting to do uh, compete with like a American Homes for rent. So they need help on site selection. Where does it work? Where do the numbers work? What's the basis need to be? And then I think multifamily is going to be fine. But a lot of this money needs to understand the why. They need to have the confidence, uh, whether it's a debt or an equity deal. And I think that's where CCIM have the skills and the tools, whether it's their investment management, whether it's site to do business data, uh, where they can sort out all the demographics and, and visualize the mapping and the, and the leakage. So I think this is an opportunity where CCIMs have the skill set to basically navigate through through really some headwinds and tough times. You know how on the sailboat, how to turn the sail uh, to deal with the wind shifting on you. And I think that's the opportunity for CCIMs. Be communicating with your clients. We're going to have a lot of stuff coming out. Um, I'm doing a piece um, that'll come out 
um, in the Sire magazine this fall on appraisal issues. There's a lot happening there in valuation. Um, we're, I got a paper coming out on self-storage, uh, going concern. Uh, if the money can't get into the bread and basket commercial real estate, they're going to look at more of the going concern. You know, things like not just hotels, but self-storage is going concern and business value. How do you not overpay? Because last year it was the number one appreciating property type up 64%. So I think there's, it's the knowledge, it's the skill set, and CCIMs need to know their skill set is going to be an extreme demand here in the next, I think, two years. Absolutely. And that's and that's what we get paid to do. Be more consultative. You're not a transaction person. You're consultative. And, yeah. uh, and the site to do business, I think, is invaluable. I, I mean, that, that site uh, gives you all the information you need uh, to, to inform yourself on a site or on an opportunity for sure. Um, the last question I got for you, Casey, it might be, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not sure how to position it other than I call it supply chain, but it really has to do with more of like the construction industry. When you're seeing things slow down and pull back, are we going to continue to have this shortage of supply, uh, in the system for doing developments and, and labor costs, the labor associated with finding contractors and finding, uh, people that will work for construction companies. Do you, do you see that? that leveling off or do you see us getting a surplus of supplies or maybe the price of goods for construction materials come down? I mean, what, what's kind of your, your thought on that? So the best resource I track to really tell me what's going on is um, one called ENR engineering news record. So they actually pull and look at all of the contracts between contractors on new development, anything that's over a couple or $3 million in, in new permit costs. And they've been telling us, look at spring last year, you know, the, the materials were up about four to five percent. The labor was up about six percent, five to six. Now we're running, you know, eight to nine percent on materials and we're running uh, overall on materials plus um, labor like 15, 16 percent. And that's not abating where we are seeing some abatement is merchant developers have figured out to cut out the middleman, the middle wholesaler. So they're now going direct to the manufacturer of the roof or the, you know, the concrete or whatnot. And they're finding that some of these folks have, as projects have been put on shelf and, and pulled back and Amazon pulled back on some of their overbuilding, that now we're starting to see some excess supply on things like roofing materials, some concrete, um, you know, aluminum type things. So we're seeing some relief there. And if you take that land now is 25 to 30% off its peak retail and materials settle down, maybe come off at 15% back to 10%. Um, we're getting back where you might be able to do some development, but I think we're, we're not going to see the end of the supply chain. You won't want to hear this, but the rest of the country does. Um, we are remaking our supply chain. We're making it, remaking it from LA Long Beach concentric, where 50% of what we consume comes in there, moves to Chicago in the east with one or two railroads, Union Pacific and BNSF, to we're going to create a north-south um, supply chain. So we already had the merger of Kansas City Southern and, and um, uh, Canadian Pacific this year, creating the first North American. And Canadian Pacific comes all the way in from Port Rupert and Vancouver, comes right down into Chicago, connects up with Kansas City Southern, goes all the way into Mexico. So what's happening on supply chain is we're realizing if you need to move, you know, potash or lumber or other materials from Canada down to the factories, or you need to move components up out of Mexico for BMW and Mercedes or auto manufacturing into the US, it all occurs 
where five of our six class one railroads move, and that is the center of the country. And they all have great port redundancy. So if you look at, I'll pick on the Atlanta Fed. I love picking on them. Um, So the Atlanta Fed has 22 ports in its district from New Orleans all the way around to Savannah um, and Brunswick, Georgia, 22 ports. They handle more supply chain and containers than two LA and Long Beach combined. And they never had more than 10 ships backed up in all of COVID. So suppliers and manufacturers are realizing that and they can come in through the Panama Canal into the Gulf into places like Port Freeport near Houston or now Port uh, Mobile um, that is now a completely remade port that could surpass the Port of Charleston within three years. Um, They all have inland um, intermodal and inland ports. Uh, They come into places even with the rivers like to um, Port Little Rock, uh, where you can move things in and out of the uh, Arkansas River down to Mississippi and out. Um, And uh, it just attracted Newcore Steel. It attracted tractor supply as their main distribution. Companies are figuring out it's the hip bone, the port hip bone connected to the rail leg bone connected to the foot interstate bone. If you connect those three things moving north-south, that's where our supply chain is going. It's going to move from the Great Lakes to the Gulf and South Atlantic. And if you look at the site selection announcements following on I-85, I-95, I-40, and I-20 between really um, Memphis and and Nashville all the way into Texas and Arizona, um, that's where our supply chain is going. And we are very, very rapidly remaking our supply chain from West Coast concentric to to the east to more north-south. That'll happen in two. We can fix this thing in 12 months. Yeah. Well, and, and, and with that, hopefully that would put a less of a strain on all of uh, the supply chain and, uh, and, and allow for some, I guess, expediency of getting goods versus waiting as long as we do for some things. Uh, HVAC units being pushed out, you know, months versus a few days uh, and, and all that. So there's definitely definitely a need for additional access and, and port port of entry. Yeah, if we could just put Lay's potato chips in all of those Ford F-150s that are sitting, 150,000 sitting idle, we'd be in good shape. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we, what we didn't realize at the time, and we all were mad at Trump, right, because he did the tariffs. What Trump revealed when he did his tariffs was how vulnerable we were to supply chain disruption and manufacturing, that we just didn't do enough of it in the United States anymore. And to now put a chip plant or get it permitted and get the EPA on board and get Congress to honor what they said they were going to do in the infrastructure bill, it's years in the making. So just like I joke that in the 70s, it took us a number of years to figure out how to make a car that wasn't 50 feet in length with no cup holders to one that was eight feet in length with 80 cup holders. It's going to take us a couple of years here to build plants, build chip plants, build manufacturing, build excess you know, capacity. It's not going to happen overnight. And so we're going to see this supply chain challenge with us for probably two or three years. Best case. Yeah, and everything you described there just opens up more opportunities for us as investors and us as, you know, uh, brokers. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it, it's going to be needed. It's uh, needed information. Well, Casey, I don't want to take up all your time here. This is, this was, has been uh, enlightening to say the least. I mean, it, it really helps uh, me as I look at some of the things I'm working on, but I'm hopeful that the audience feels the same way, which I'm sure they will. 
how do people stay in touch as far as get your information? Do you have uh, a site, a newsletter, or what would you recommend people kind of subscribe to to kind of keep up to date on what's going on as it relates to uh, economics and information coming out of, uh, you know, CCIM Institute? Right. So we try to offer a lot to the Institute, but as you know, they've, they've had some staffing turnover and challenges and whatnot. So I would direct you to our, our Red Shoe Economics website. It's www.redshoeeconomics.com. And what you'll find there, if you go to the events tab, every presentation I do, and I do dozen or more every month, they're there. So they're refreshed. I don't keep the same deck. I, you know, a third to half the deck gets redone even between weeks and any new announcement. So you can go to the events tab on our website and you can get all my presentations, all of our research, whether it's adaptive reuse, logistics, uh, we put it, we put it all there. We've been doing the war courses. We developed the two two of the new ones, the logistics one, we'll be redoing that here again, and I think in August, we just did the inflation um, the third time we've updated that one. So go to the Ward Center, the great courses, they do a lot job, great job of keeping some of that going. So we've got the current on inflation. Um, but, uh, and then I'll give you my, my email. Um, I'm going to give you two at the office. We're a, we're a whopping huge company of four people, <laughs> but we do four million yes. tons of work every month. Um, so mine is just the initials KC at Red Shoe Economics. And yes, that is with two E's, confusing. KC at Red Shoe Economics, um, dot com. And then my business partner, Beverly Keith, who, um, been on the board directors of the Institute and um, uh, president of the North Carolina chapters. Um, so she's Beverly, B-E-V-E-R-L-Y at redshoeeconomics.com. And so if you can't find something or you need something or you want us to come uh, cheer you up or find where the other glass of half water went, reach out to the one or two of us. The trick to get me, because I get about four to 600 emails a day um, and don't tell 90 more people this, but if you put top 90 in the subject matter somewhere, top 90, you know, uh, NAI, Seattle or CCIM, you know, whatever, uh, ports or supply chain or what, you know, whatever. Every night at about 1030, I sit down and I sort my email out. Anything that has top 90 in it between 1030 and 1 a.m. in the morning, I try to make sure I respond to all of those. Um, and I just have to let the others build up till I can get to them. But um, that's the easiest way. But we make all of our presentations, all our research, all of our papers available. Um, we're still trying to navigate, figure out how to do as much for the Institute on that side. I think it's just the challenges. Uh, Paul Rumler, our new CEO, is doing a great job trying to tackle all those issues and staff staff loss and turnover. Um, but uh, in the meantime, you can come to us directly and we'll try to help you out. Okay. Well, I appreciate that and uh, appreciate the time again here, Casey. And hopefully it's not too hot there in hot Atlanta. Uh, it's miserable. And, uh, if you look at the misery <laughs> index. So there is a thing called the misery index. And so there's a new one. And it just hit 29, uh, 29, the record level ever. But it's it's miserable in, in Atlanta right now between the heat and humidity. But I'll leave you with one last thought. I keep telling people this. Don't get scared. Get prepared. And that's what CCIMs can do. Help your clients not be scared and confused about all this. Help get them positioned and prepared to recognize the risks and maybe unwind some of those risks or call their portfolio and help them get prepared for the opportunity. So don't get scared, get prepared. The fall's coming, the temperatures are coming down and SEC football is just around the corner. <laughs> I'm into that. 
Well, thanks again, Casey. And uh, I appreciate it. And everybody out there listening, if you have any questions for me, don't hesitate to uh, send me a note at Derek at DokeMail.com. Other than that, let everybody get back to work and have a great day. Thanks again. All right. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you should have any questions, please do not hesitate to reach out to me directly at Derek at DokeMail.com. Again, thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a great day. Thank you.